Hi there, this is Camille Phillips from the ONA audio team. My day job is covering education for Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. Yesterday, I went to a session called Lessons from Black Twitter. There, a panelist named Meredith Clark suggested something interesting. One of the problems that I have long had with the AP and have written about and plenty of people have written about it, but the AP doesn't capitalize the B in black. And that is one of the reasons that while it's great for maintaining consistency across platforms with style and the way that we report on things, I can point to it as flawed. Whereas you can take your style guide at your paper, your digital platform, your outlet, what have you, and make those kind of changes that say we respect the audience that follows us. We understand that this is a concern that they have. I wanted to hear more about why she thinks that's important, so I tracked her down. One of my interests as a former copy editor and as a former journalist um, who studies issues of power now in media is while black is not necessarily a proper noun, uh, for a number of people, myself included, it is a political and cultural identity. And in that way, I do believe that the B should be capitalized, especially if that's the identity that someone is choosing for themselves. Um, they recognize the role that race plays in the way that they are perceived and move through the world. Black was used as a signifier to denote different communities, to denote different kinds of people, um, and I think to decapitalize it says something about the level of respect um, specifically for the humanity of black people that we do or do not consider. When media thinks about the fractured relationships that they have with underrepresented communities, you have to think about a number of different points and where perhaps people have found that there's a rift between the way that you try to portray them and what you actually understand about them. And so for a number of black people who take issue with the B being lowercase, it's a sign that you don't recognize blackness as this identity in the way that I do. Hispanic is capitalized, Latino is capitalized, you're saying that in the same way black should be capitalized, is that a fair way of saying it? Absolutely. Blackness is, um, it is a cultural identifier, it is a personal and social identifier, and it should be capitalized in the very same way. Um, I was looking it up after you said that, then I saw like all these articles, like in New York Times opinion piece in 2014, I'm like, oh, okay, this is a pretty, like, this is something that people talk about a lot. But at the same time, the National Association for Black Journalists, I looked at their style guide and it still says lowercase black. And, and that's the thing about blackness and black identity and any other community that you can think of. Within the community, there are going to be divergent opinions. And while NABJ uh, certainly represents for black journalists the authority on style and on the way um, we write about black people and cultures and communities, they're not the end-all be-all. So and, and they do make changes in the same way that the AP Stylebook makes changes year over year. NABJ may one year decide, you know, hey, we are going to advance this. This is going to be a cause that we're going to stand for and ask for the change as well. It's capitalized in their name. <laughs> Fair point. Um, why does that build trust to, to capitalize the B? It shows that you recognize uh, that blackness is an identity and that blackness has carried with it, specifically in the United States, um, a certain very loaded political history. And so for people to claim that and to want it to be recognized, to recognize it says that you see that, you recognize that you, you recognize the importance of this signifier to them and that you have respect for the way that they want to be talked about in the way that they want to be framed in media. And this was part of a discussion that was more generally talking about um, during the session, times when you might want to vary your news outlet style guide from AP style. Can you talk about that more in other examples or, or broader terms? Every platform has its own internal style guide and sometimes the internal style guide speaks to things that are very specific to your community. Perhaps the way streets are laid out or the way that you pronounce a certain street name or a person's name. Things that you're not going to find in the AP style book because the AP style book is a very general guide. It's for everyone everywhere. Um, but you have the political power if you will, to decide on what sort of internal style decisions you're going to make. And so if you can, as a staff, come together and think about some of the key decisions that you want to make to better reflect the communities and the cultures that you serve, this might be a question that you consider for your internal style book. 
Well, thank you so much. You've given me a lot of food for thought. I covered Ferguson and was in St. Louis for four years, and now I'm like, what was I signifying to my audience by not capitalizing the B? And to think about that now. Um, anything else you think uh, I should ask or I should know? Um, I think just as you pointed out, you know, there are a number of different ways of looking at this. And I think that it's something that each newsroom kind of has to come to on its own until we get that push upwards towards the AP Stylebook and get the AP Stylebook to perhaps examine its practices. Change comes from the ground up. And I think we'll see that from newsrooms and from communities upwards to AP. Thank you. Thank you. That was University of Virginia Assistant Professor Meredith Clark. If you missed Lessons from Black Twitter yesterday, keep listening for the rest of the very thought-provoking session. And if you see me around ONA, say hi. I'd love to hear about the conversations you're having about building trust in your newsroom. Is this on? Can you guys hear me okay? Great. Thanks for coming. This is a beautiful audience. Good morning. Um, <laughs> great. At least I got one engagement. <laughs> um, so thanks for joining. I'm Anusha Ali Khan. I'm the Director of Communications at Knight Foundation. And I'm joined here today by Meredith Clark, who is the Assistant Professor at the University of Virginia. She is one of the authors on the report that we will be discussing more in detail. I also have Paul Chung, who's Knight Foundation's Director of Journalism and Technology Innovation. And I have Nisha Chittle, who's the Engagement Editor at Vox. So before we kick off, I had a few questions. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yes, clap, not clapbacks. Before we kick off, I had a few questions that I wanted to ask the audience. Um, so how many of you in the audience have ever found a story on Twitter or found a source on Twitter? OK, wow. So quite a few of you. And how many people would describe the coverage in their news organizations as diverse and inclusive? Oh, boy. Okay, glad you're here. Um, so how many think how many think that their newsroom is still having challenges in that regard? Okay, well, hopefully we'll find some answers for you today. Um, so this conversation was really born out of a report that Knight Foundation released earlier this year that explored how online communities, black Twitter, Asian American Twitter, and feminist Twitter interact with the media. And it aligned with our journalism work in trying to get more diverse coverage and also more diversity into newsrooms more generally. And these were some of the key findings from that report. So what we found was that journalists viewed Twitter as a very productive tool for gathering story ideas and insights. We also found that there's a lot of mistrust. So a favorability analysis of major news outlets showed that the communities were twice as likely to express a negative view of news than a positive view. The participants in the communities also regularly use Twitter to raise awareness about issues of concern on their own terms without waiting for journalists to take interest. And when it comes to media criticism, participants were really concerned about framing more generally. So they're not so much taking issue with the facts, uh, with the basic facts, or asking what, but more so asking why those facts are being, some facts are being emphasized at the expense of other facts. Um, Participants in these communities also said that they don't like having their tweets harvested by journalists for stories without permission. They had two major concerns in that regard, the lack of control over intellectual property and the potential for online harassment. And then one of the most interesting findings, I think, from the report was really this idea around engagement. So a lot of the media organization, a lot of media organizations typically look at the number of shares on a story as an endorsement. 
they and they also use it to judge news impact but really what this report shows is that popularity in terms of share counts doesn't necessarily mean approval or trust in fact the news organizations in the study that got the most uh, criticism also got the most shares so all of these findings were basically based on an analysis of over 46 million tweets in these communities, uh, as well as a qualitative uh, portion which interviewed many of the influencers within the communities. So I'd love to kick off with our panel now. Um, so diverse Twitter communities can offer a view into what people care about outside of mainstream news stories. And at the same time, though, the report underlined those problems of trust that I just uh, flagged. And that really stems from how reporters misuse the information um, that they discover through the communities. So Meredith, you were one of the researchers on this report, obviously. Uh, I wanted you to talk about where the mistrust comes from and also whether there's a right way to mine stories from these communities. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, so we have to go back a little bit further than you know the dawn of Twitter as a source for um, news and as a place where journalists are able to connect uh, more immediately with the people who are in their stories and the people who read their stories. Um, when the question was asked about diverse coverage in your newsrooms, few hands went up. And that's part of the problem that we see and that we have heard from the individuals who participated in this research, that they come from communities that have long been underserved, that have long been negatively framed, and whose narratives have been co-opted and not necessarily told as well as they could be told if people were more engaged with their community. So the trust or mistrust was already there, and that's a lesson that I saw myself um, when I worked for newspapers, going out to communities and, and thinking, even with black communities, because I'm a part of a black community, I can go in and have you know some sort of level of engagement with folks, and I'll be more readily accepted. And the truth was, because the newspaper in the community where I had worked had done such a bad job, a poor job, of covering black communities there over the years, people still didn't want to engage. So it didn't matter whether you know now we have uh, the ability to connect with folks in real time on social media, or perhaps we were upping our engagement with that community, the lack of trust was already there. So we've got a breach that we have to work with, first of all, that is already existing. So you have to acknowledge that, that the, the gulf is already there. In the way, um, I don't necessarily like thinking about mining stories when I talk to individuals who were interested in better engaging with journalists who were trying to cover their communities, the thing they want is source development. In the same way that you would go out, and if you were reporting on City Hall, the school board, the old beats that we're used to, people want you to talk to them like they are human beings, because every single account that you see on Twitter, so long as it's not a Russian bot, um, <laughs> reflects a person, a person with a lived reality off of this online space. They're bringing just one part of their lived reality to the space. And so they want to hear directly from you as an actual person. Talk to them as though they are a neighbor or someone at the coffee shop. Maybe a person that if you weren't interested in a story, you might just pass them by on the street and not actually realize that they were there. So they want that human engagement. And I think that's the best way to start thinking about digging into some of the stories that you see. You previously talked uh, with me about um, the problem with parachuting into these communities. Can you expand on that a little bit as well? Absolutely. So um, I can think of a, a couple of examples, and I'll try and, and go with one um, that's somewhat contemporary. So the story that we can all see unfolding in Dallas uh, with the young man who was shot in his own home. Um, in, in communities where police violence has been a problem everywhere from Ferguson to Cleveland to Staten Island, all of the cities that you can think of that have been a flashpoint for these stories, you have individuals who will come in and of course report the story as they are assigned to do, but then they leave and they don't leave anything. There's not much follow-up, there's not much ongoing engagement about what has progressed in that community since you were last there. 
And two of the things that I heard from individuals that we talked to were about actually establishing relationships with the community and doing that in part by learning more about the history of the community. So what history, if you're, say, reporting on the death of um, both and John in Dallas, what history do you know about the Dallas Police Department and even the part of town that Botham John lived in and how that part of town has been uh, underserved and also somewhat targeted by the Dallas Police Department over several years, how it's got a reputation for being a, a bad neighborhood and how that impacts the narrative that you see being reported. So people want more journalists to think about getting context for the stories that they're reporting um, by learning a little bit about the history before they get there, and then following up. Follow up is it's a lost art in our field, right? Uh, going back to the sources and telling them about the reporting that you're doing afterwards and checking in with them to see how the issue has developed long after you've left. So as I said in the opening, the night report showed that popularity in terms of likes and share counts doesn't necessarily mean approval or trust, and it could signal actually a negative reaction to the coverage. Paul, uh, you said in a previous discussion about the report that news organizations should move away from the term audience engagement because it's become too grounded in metrics, clicks, likes, et cetera. Um, can you expand on that? Yeah, because I think right now, so much emphasis is on data, but that data doesn't tell you the complete stories. So if you're just relying on data to say, wow, you know, there's a lot of, you, you've seen signals that some community care about it. The Asian Twitter and black Twitter universe does not represent the entire black community or Asian community. It is a slice of it. So right now, you know, we just need to like pick up the phone and call somebody. <laughs> Like you need to just get out there because hiding behind the numbers and say, oh, you know, people like it, they're resharing, it does not mean that they trust you. It does not mean that at all. I mean, don't confuse easy access to a community to trust. Those are two separate issues, right? Because it's still building on relationship. And I think a lot of this is just really looking at sort of your internal newsroom diversity. I mean, how many of us who are, you know, person of color journalists in the newsroom get confused with, always get confused oh with the, uh, no, like, <laughs> are you the tech person? I'm like, no, I'm not. I've been, I've been working here for five years, right? If your newsroom couldn't tell you apart, what makes you think that they would do a good job covering the community, digitally or in real life? It happens in philanthropy, too. <laughs> um, Nisha, from your experience at Vox as engagement editor, what can journalists use as better indicators of audience engagement when connecting with these diverse audiences? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, something I wanted to add when Paul was speaking is that, I mean, you're totally right that um, it's important to look at engagement numbers, it's important to look at the numbers of shares and comments, but you're right that those are not always positive. And a thing that came to mind immediately for me is if you spend any time on Twitter, you're probably familiar with the concept of ratioing where uh, something has a low, a tweet has a low number of retweets and likes, but a really high number of replies, which generally indicates, like, if you looked at just pure number of, total number of raw interactions on it, you might think that it was received positively, but actually, if a tweet was ratioed, like, everybody hated it, and they're giving you negative feedback. Um, so it's really important to not just, yeah, not just look at the numbers, but understand the context, too, and, and actually read the comments and, and uh, read the dialogue and, and listen and understand. Um, and I think that, the, you know, the most important thing that, that um, audience teams can be doing is, is just listening. And as you were saying, like spending time in these communities, not just parachuting in, listening to other perspectives uh, on Twitter, on other social media platforms. Um, and the other thing I think is, is um, that I think is important for journalists is like resisting the urge to be defensive when you get negative feedback on a story. Um, I, I think that, you know, often, you know, journalists, we can we can sometimes be thin-skinned and we get negative feedback about a story uh, that we've worked on for, for months that our team worked really hard on and, and lots of people contributed to and you put it out there into the world on social media and maybe you start getting some feedback, some criticism saying that you didn't cover this perspective or, or this community or you didn't um, acknowledge this angle. And I think, you know, we have a tendency, it's human to, to want to be defensive because you spent a lot of time working on that. Um, but I think it's, it's really, really important and incumbent on journalists to, um, 
you know, re- resist that urge to be defensive and, and truly listen and be willing to learn from other people's perspectives because that is the only way that we start to better understand these other communities that maybe you're not a part of and so you didn't know about that perspective or that angle, um, but you can you can learn from, from really listening to your audience and, and being open to taking the criticism and, and learn from it. I mean, I, I would add, don't fetishize the subculture, right? Because I think there's also a tendency to say, oh, we need like the black perspective, I'm gonna parachute in, or you know, where's the Asian angle on that? Like we not check boxes, like subcultures and people call it not check boxes, like don't check us like we need this perspective. Um, it goes back to the relationship building, right? If you really want to be authentic to your story and you want a diverse perspective, then spend the time to follow the people in black Twitter and Asian Twitter. Engage with them first before you sort of like just take their tweets and their perspective. Like, where's the relationship building? And it goes back to their source, and you need to cultivate that source. So yeah, you guys raise a really interesting point about perspective more generally. In the report, a lot of people that were interviewed actually took issue with journalism as being objective, period. Reporters, they said that reporters approach storytelling through their worldview, and in most cases, that's a white male worldview. Um, So how do you guys think that reporters can avoid bias, and especially unconscious bias? You know, I think you really have to, uh, I I think we all have to work really hard to assume that, to not assume that our, because we experience something in a certain way, that is how everyone else experiences it. Um, You know, particularly as you mentioned, like, um, I do think the concept of objectivity was sort of defined in an era where, like, newsrooms were all white men, and so now we sort of have to redefine that a little bit because um, there has been historically this tendency to assume that, like, the white male perspective is the default perspective, and if you're coming at it from a perspective that is um, a, a woman or a person of color, or a woman of color, um, your perspective is colored by your race and gender, as if white men don't have race and gender, but they do, uh, <laughs> just a com- completely different one. So um, I think we all have to challenge ourselves to really um, think beyond our own experiences, and I've heard it, you know, in conversations, a lot uh, where we talk about story ideas, I have in my career heard people say, well, I don't think that's a big deal. I don't know anyone who thinks that's a big deal. And it makes me think of like the Pauline Kael thing where she was like, I don't know anyone who voted for Nixon. So like why, you know, you have to think beyond yourself and your own experience and the people you know and the people in your social circle and and your sort of realm of the world and and really push yourself to consider those other perspectives and and go beyond and assume that like your perspective is not the default perspective. Um, I would I would second those comments. I often think about who was not in the room when we first established the practices that we know of as reporting and journalism, right? Um, if Mizzou is the first journalism mass communication program in the country and founded in the 19... Uh, let me not quote the wrong date, um, but founded at a time where women could not enroll, where black people could not enroll. Um, passing down these traditions on reporting when folks like Walter Lippmann were setting the table and, and not necessarily inviting anyone else, how can we consider that we have the perspective or are reflecting the perspectives of the diverse, diverse world that we live in? And I don't necessarily buy into the idea of unconscious bias. Um, I buy into the idea idea of a lack of exposure and choices that are made. I think about the hierarchy of influences model that uh, Pamela Schumacher, who's a researcher at Syracuse University, and Stephen Reese, who was here at the University of Texas at Austin, please correct me if he's elsewhere now, Um, But they talk about how there are a number of influences on the way that journalism is done and on the outermost level those being advertising and corporate impact and on the innermost level those being the influences of the individual. As journalists, we all filter what we get, all of the information that we get through some part of our personal experience. And whether that personal experience is journalism training in a journalism school, or it's personal experience as in our lived reality. 
minorities. We all color what we report on in some way, shape, or form. One of the ways that I think that we can kind of combat against being a little bit myopic about the way that we tell stories is by bouncing those stories off of other people. And I know that in newsrooms where time is of the essence and you really don't have the same kind of time that we enjoyed when you could sit down with an editor and go graph by graph over your story, thinking and talking to people in the community about parts of your story as it's developing is one way to think about some of the blind spots that you may miss. And if you don't have the opportunity to do that, maybe tossing some of those things out on Twitter. You don't necessarily have to tell everybody the entire angle of your story or everything that you're working on, but even sometimes floating questions to your audience members, especially if you have previously engaged with them, they know your work, they know what you are about, you will find that you can build trust with people who will answer questions for you. Folks want to help. They want you to get it right. So if you ask them about certain community issues or blind spots that you may have, you will find that you can get positive feedback from people on the other side of the internet who may know things and be exposed to things that you don't have much knowledge about. I mean, the great thing about our job is we get paid to be curious. And you know, I think one thing that I always ask people to check is, how many of you have Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, right? So like, we all do. So when a lot of recruiters, it's like, where are the minorities? And I'm just like, well, take a look at your own Facebook feed and Instagram feed. If your day-to-day -day action does not involve a person of color, what makes you think you'd be great at recruiting a person of color? <laughs> right? if, if you are a reporter who's covering a community of color, and if I'm looking through your Instagram feed, it's like, where are the people of color? Again, like, what makes you think you're the expert to cover this community when you're, you would prefer day-to-day -day interaction has nothing to do with this community? So, a live clapback. And I think that is actually um, what leads to some of the mistrust that is bred in these communities when it comes to reporters. Um, so my question is, how can that current scrutiny on issues of trust in the media now be an opportunity for diverse communities to push for more thoughtful storytelling and more critical reporting? Like, how can they, they use this sort of as a platform at this point um, to say, report, report the right way on this community? Mm -hmm. I think we're seeing it. I, I think we're seeing it unfold every day and with every single story that gets reported. I um, go back to the Botham John uh, story and, and how it's being reported now pretty much in, in real time. And you can see the pushback from black communities across the country and from people who are concerned about police violence across the country. They are scrutinizing every single part of the narrative from sources, like why are you solely relying on what the police have to say about this when we can look at the reporting from Ferguson and we can look at the reporting from 2014 forward and see that there have been problems with police narratives. Um, when communities learn about what our reporting practices are and how they are shaped, and this is part of our job as well in educating people on why we've selected the material that we've selected, they are more critical and they, they go back to that news literacy um, concept that we talk about so often that we want people to be literate about what the media is, how it is shaped, and how it works. And so I see people jumping in and criticizing at every single point and pushing back on the reporting. I think it's something that's happening right now. I, I don't think that um, you know, anyone's waiting for a, a particular opportunity. I, mean, I also think just be very transparent about what you don't know. And even when you make a mistake, I know being a journalist, a mistake is a really, we almost like make that word as like the worst thing you could do. Right, in, in your job, but we're humans and that's normal. And I think it's important for a news organization when they have a faux pas, just own it. I mean, for example, when, you know, when New York Times wrote a story last year about boba, you know, they make it sound like, what is this delicious drink that, that have this blob in it? I'm like, yes, boba is delicious, and, but they've been around for 30 we years. Right? <laughs> but when they hear readers' feedback, they own it and they issue apology. And I think that's first step. Versus some other places, you know, where just refuse to even pronounce the Olympic City's name mm. correctly. I mean, again, it's just like, 
don't give me a lame excuse saying that, like, well, this is cleaner sound. Cleaner sound to who? Right? Yeah. I don't see anyone mispronouncing Austin <laughs> because it sounds cleaner for someone else. So I think just really own it because you have to build that trust from somewhere. And, you know, your constituents and readers and, and, and audience need to know that when you make that mistake, you're also ready to own up. And the next step is really about educate me, right? That's part of being a journalist. We, I mean, the great thing about job is we, we get to be curious and we learn new things all the time. And it's a privilege. Yeah, uh, that's totally, and that's totally um, is what I was talking about with, um, like, we just have to resist the urge to be defensive. And um, a lot of times I see journalists get criticism about a story on, on Twitter and they respond right away and they fire back and they say, well, you don't, you, know, you don't know, like, this is the way we did, this is the reason we did it this way. And I would tell people, just like, take a minute, like, don't respond to Twitter instantly, take a breather, really think about it, try to really consider that reader's perspective because you could learn something really valuable from it and, and maybe you do need to make a correction, maybe you do need to update the story, maybe it could have been done better. Um, so I, I always tell people, like, don't, like, and don't respond immediately, but also don't just dismiss them as, like, I've also heard that in newsrooms of people being dismissive of Twitter feedback and, and saying, oh, it's just Twitter being Twitter, you know, they hate everything, they never like, like, but you can't be dismissive either. You have to really um, uh, open yourself up to that feedback. And, and, you know, we're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. And, like, you're not, it's okay to make a mistake. And as long as you're willing to, to listen and learn from it. Um, and, like, I always advise people, like, don't respond immediately to the Twitter. Like, take a, take a minute. Take a breather. Really think about it and, and try to consider that perspective and see what you can learn from it. Great, thanks. So I have a few more questions for you guys, but I did, uh, since we're about halfway through, I did want to open it up to some audience questions as well. So uh, lots of hands going up. So the gentleman in the middle there? Yeah? Well, I guess, um, <clears throat> my name's Brian. Thank you for being here. Um, so I'm reminded of Mizzou protests 2015, 2016, um, when black students and allies of these students were respectfully requesting that media uh, be barred from covering the camp out that was taking place. Um, so how do you, how would reporters mitigate their quote-unquote duty to report with uh, respecting a history of violence or a history of um, stereotyping that exists because of the mistrust between the reporter and the community? Mm -hmm. Um, I, I watched that as it unfolded, and the thing that I thought about as a journalism educator is the way that we approach sources. And would you approach any other source that was hurting, that had experienced some sort of trauma, that was asking you respectfully to maintain this boundary with the same kind of force? Now, we understand the rights that the First Amendment guarantees. We understand the responsibilities that it imbues. But I would argue that in that moment, those black students in that particular gathering were not the only black students on Missouri's campus that could have been interviewed at that time. And in fact, in developing sources, if one, there had been a relationship with black students on campus at that time anyway, you might have had someone who would be the person who would go into the community and say, all right, there's someone out here from the media that I know, I trust, that wants to talk to us. Is anyone willing to talk to this person? That's one way to negotiate access. It is all about negotiation in this case. Um, so thinking about the ways that you can find a more permeable boundary, whether that's another group of black students somewhere, um, whether that is perhaps coming back at a later time, you know, maybe an hour later, some of the fury has died down in this particular spot. Maybe people are hungry and they're venturing out of this one space and you catch someone coming out and you interview them then. I think it's about being smart, really. There, uh, we are the professionals when it comes down to finding sources, to getting in touch with sources, to relating to them as human beings and using the skills that we have and the, the skills that we have in, in relating to other people is necessary. You can't just go in with a badge like you are essentially the police <laughs> or you know I'm, I'm wielding this badge of the fourth estate and force your way in that's that's no way to gain access and uh, certainly not long-term access to a community that you want to report on over a, a period of time 
I think people know when you're genuinely authentic and want to have a conversation, right? So, you know, in some of these moments of breaking news, we're just so focused on delivering the news, we forget about the human aspect is, you know, we just want to go, give me this quote, give me this thing so I could like do the push alert or write the first draft. I mean, our job is not easy, but at the same time, like they're living that moment right now. You know, take that pause and just like really have the conversation. You want to make sure that your story have all the background color correct, right? So like, just look at that as how could I get more information? It's just pre-reporting. The way I see it is pre-reporting is sort of a good way of developing the relationship. And once you earn that trust, then yeah, that person will probably be on the record. Great. And I see a hand back there. Great. I'm curious to hear a little bit more about the findings on um, tweet harvesting, um, pulling people's stories in without asking them first, pulling people's tweets into a story without asking first. As you know, right now we have about a zillion protests going on in DC. We can't cover all of them, and one of the things that our newsroom does a lot is is pulling in people's tweets um, who are on the ground. And I think the last thing any of us would want is to open people up for online harassment um, by giving those tweets a bigger platform. So the, the individuals that we talked to, and, and we heard this um, specifically from black Twitter and feminist Twitter, um, Dr. Sarah Jackson did the, the analysis on feminist Twitter. She's SJJ PhD on Twitter. Um, some of the things that we heard were the lack of regard to what individuals were tweeting about and the nature of their comments, and then the, the lack of regard for context to what they were tweeting about and how they had tweeted it. And so selecting certain tweets and taking them out of the environment um, and without giving them context, without explaining what this tweet was a part of, what conversation it was a part of, and then just posting it on a news story. And the damage that can be done when we consider our media platforms as vectors for those online conversations where Twitter's terms of service say that if you have a public account, anything that you post here can be used by anyone anywhere else, um, we have to go a step further and think about the ethics of posting these sort of things. And that's what our participants were asking us to do. Some of the suggestions they had about doing that responsibly were taking into consideration what the conversation was. One of the examples that I heard from a number of folks that I interviewed for the Black Twitter section was the um, what I wore conversation. This was a few years ago about a woman who tweeted what she was wearing the night she was sexually assaulted and how one platform took those tweets and turned them into a story without mentioning that they were going to do it, without giving her any heads up, not necessarily asking for permission, but at least letting someone know that, hey, this platform that has millions of followers is about to see your tweet without context, without full context, and you may be getting an influx of people coming to your timeline. And so the things that they were asking for were at least a nod, saying, you know, hey, we saw your tweet, it's interesting, it has some content that's related to something that we're working on, we're using it in a story. Technically, you do not have to give someone permission. Uh, you know, a person on online doesn't have to give you permission to use their things if they are using Twitter that's in the terms of service, but in terms of good faith relationships and maintaining those, at least letting people know that they're being used in the story and how they are being used um, is part of that good faith effort. And so that's, that's the thing that I really drove home in the report, that giving people a heads up is just the least that we could do. I mean, I think historically, you know, African American, Asian American, Latino Americans, Native American, people take what belong to us and just pass it on as if it's theirs, right? So there's a history of that already. So it's not just saying that you might be a very normal practice that I'm gonna you know, uh, take the Inbeco, copy and paste that tweet and put it in your story. But when you think about the history of sort of how the subcultures are being treated, it's like we're always, like things are always being pilfered from all of our cultures. 
and, and get surfaced as the dominant, right, without credit back. So I think it's just exercising that a little bit of sensitivity, just like, hey, you know what, we, we value, you, you have some insights here, could we use it? Like, it's just courtesy to just acknowledge it, like, I'm not going to repeat history to you. So actually, just to build on that a little bit, it's social media has really opened up this idea of people being able to sort of either mine or source things without permission. Um, and there's now an in increasing scrutiny on platforms um, and practices that create issues around privacy, online harassment, and news filtering. Um, so how can publishers in particular work to counteract some of those issues? Uh, rather than simply working within the system that platforms have built. Nisha, maybe we'll start with you. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with what Meredith said about um, it is a, even though you technically don't have to ask someone to aggregate their tweet in a story, it's a good thing to do um, because some of those people might not want to be exposed to, you know, your website's millions of viewers. Um, especially with broadcast, too. Um, at, at, when I was at MSNBC, we, we had to. Like, if we were going to put something on TV, if we were going to put a tweet on TV, we had to get permission from that person because that is such a huge platform, and they will get tweets from random MSNBC viewers. So, like, it was just, that was the default. Um, even, if it took, even if it took longer to get it to air, like, that, that is okay. And I, I think that we, you know, sometimes we're in a hurry, but, like, you don't have to be first. Like it's better, I, I think, long, in the long term to preserve those relationships, and and that helps build that trust. Um, and the other thing I think is is like contextualize, like contextualizing, right? Like aggregating a bunch of tweets is a really common like story format now. Um, but I think it's really, really important to not just like embed a string of tweets and say like this thing happened and this hashtag trended and here's 20 tweets about it. It's really important to contextualize and explain and, and help people understand like what this means and, and why it's significant and, and where these people are coming from um, and, and sort of the background and the history, as you mentioned. Um, I, I think all of those things are things that publishers can do to, to um you know, preserve and develop trust and, and show that, like, they're not just, like, using your content to get clicks. Because I think that is the thing, like, people are very cynical now that, like, this publisher just, this website just used my tweet to get some cheap clicks. And so I think we have to do the work to prove that, like, we're not just doing that. We are, we are genuinely invested in their stories and, and we care and we're going to get their story right. I mean, I would examine the editorial process, right? Like, so back then when you can't take a tweet and like, if you just do the man on the street reporting, you hear some random person saying, you don't just suddenly take that quote <laughs> exactly. and run it. So why yeah. would like social media change that? So I think, you know, for those of us who are digital experts, it's your responsibility to go to your standards editor, right, and say, what are the standards that we need to apply so that it's consistent with the editorial process, regardless of how you know the platform or the medium, right? It's just really having that consistency, right? If you're not going to take a random like quote that you hear, then you shouldn't just go to Twitter and just like I'm going to lift this tweet and put it on my story because you know what is easy. Yeah, I, I would also add that um, the point about standards editors, um, it is great when you have a standards mm. editor. Um, not every newsroom has them now. I've, I've worked in places that have a, a whole standards department, and I've worked in places that don't have a single person uh, dedicated to standards. Um, so I think when you don't have that, which um, some newsrooms don't, um, I think it is, uh, you know, I, th I think it is more challenging, but I do think it's helpful to like develop your own uh, standards um, across the newsroom of like how do we use content from social media in our stories and our reporting, and like what are our like what's our protocol here, and like what are we, how do we handle these things, um, and having that sort of like documentation of like this is the way that we handle these things is is really helpful. So a few hands here. Uh Back there? Yes, you. <laughs> I wish I could see name tags from here. <laughs> sure. and I'm just 
repeated or even like independent ones like Shadow League and that winning. Um, and some people look at that and say, oh cool, they're highlighting women and people of color. And other people are like, no nah, man, they just gave them the sandbox in the corner of the internet to play in. It doesn't count. Um, is there, have you gotten feedback from audiences on how they feel about that practice of doing so? Um, and is there a solution that incorporates that content but also highlights Um, I would say that, I mean, we get mixed feedback about that. There is obviously the, the perspective. We get lots of feedback about, like, well, why is there a separate, uh, this isn't the, I'm just, just to clarify, it's not where I work now, but in past places I've worked at, um, why is there a separate um, NBC Black section instead of stories about black issues on NBCnews.com? Um, it, and but there is also the 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 other perspective on that is like well at least they are like de like they have hired a dedicated staff for NBC Black that is covering these stories and is covering these issues and and they are getting attention on NBCNews.com. Um, so you know there are sort of differing perspectives on that and I don't know that there is any one perfect solution. I would say that like. I do still think there's value in having those sections um, and having that coverage and having reporters who are um, specifically hired to cover those communities. I also think that what what's really important to do is make sure that those sections are not siloed from the rest of the newsroom, that they are integrated as, as part of the newsroom, that they can cover, uh, they, you know, are considered, like, serious and are part of, like, like the, you know, the diversity vertical should be part of covering politics. You know, they should be part of all of the major stories of the day because, you know, their, like, diversity and, and gender and all of these things are part of our current, like, political news cycle. So they should all be involved in the newsroom's, like, political coverage and the rest of their coverage. Um, and the other thing I would say in terms of, like, a, a, a more, like, tactical thing is, like, making sure those stories from those verticals are getting promoted in the same way that, like, any other story on the site would. Like, you can't just, like, silo them and be like, oh, well, well, you know, they're in their own corner and they have their own Twitter account, so, like, they'll promote their stories there. Like, those stories should be on the homepage of, of the, the main site. Like, they should be promoted from the main social accounts. Like, they should be given the same amount of, of promotion and exposure. And in particular, homepages, I think that, like, stories from a diversity vertical should be on your homepage so that they're not just being served to that that separate audience, but are being served to your wider, like broader audience too. Great. I saw a couple more hands right here. So my, you might be a better one to talk. I, I just think right now we are chasing a lot. I mean, think about the numerous dashboard that all of you have over time, right? It seems like every year there's a new dashboard, some new numbers we're chasing. And we have to look at the entire data set as totality and not just look at, when you constantly slice and dice certain numbers, I mean, I hear newsroom for a broadcaster where like they have a dashboard of like how many likes and retweets they get. That's a lot of pressure, and that data again doesn't represent the totality of what you want to do. And I think, you know, if we want to sort of measure the the quality of data, first we have to go back and say, are we even looking for the right signals? And you know, um, I, I would say, I mean, that's a it's a really good question. Um, I don't know, like, I don't have a, a perfect metric for like measuring trust. That's a that's a really hard thing to measure, um, and a I think a question for like the whole industry to grapple with. Um, I would say that um, you know, as someone who works in audience development, like I do spend a lot of time like slicing and dicing metrics, and we can't completely do away with page views because that's how things function. I will say that we, you know, we also try to look at, um, my team, we try to look a lot at loyalty. Um, and I see that a little, to some degree, as an indicator of trust. Um, are people, um, 
you know, coming in and not just reading one story, but are they like how like we think a lot about how to convert them from one off visitors into loyal repeat visitors. And that to me, I think, is one of the best indicators of trust. Um, so we look at things like time spent on page. We look at pages per session. Um, we we also have, have been trying to start incorporating qualitative feedback into our, our reporting, not just here's numbers on page views and time spent, but also the qualitative feedback of like what kind of what kind of emails did we get? Um, we get a lot of email replies to our newsletter. We get a lot of thoughtful um, emails from readers saying, I really appreciated this story because it helped me understand this complicated trade sanction issue um and i understand a lot better now and i understand why it matters and um you know this was really valuable to me and and that to me um you know it's it's not a number and it may not you know when you're talking to higher ups who are worried about revenue and stuff like they're they're going to look at page views and traffic first and foremost but i do think um there is more of a push now to look at qualitative feedback of like that is how you really know if you if your readers trust you. I mean, I almost want to see dashboard in a way that tells you like, you know, these numbers are the revenue generating number, right? Like, here's the numbers that matters for the business, and here's the data that matters for sentiment, which sort of measure a very different things. And but we, when we most of the dashboard that I've seen is sort of like there's one dashboard, there's a lot of numbers, there's a lot of charts, and you always feel pressure, just like oh my god, the line is not up and. You know, and I don't know if like we all really want to live like that. Well, there's a, a tool that I can think of, and please correct me if it's if it's no longer functional. But um, CIR came up with the impact tracker a few years ago, and the course uh, the code is open source, so that you can plug it in yourself and kind of adapt it to use it the way that you need to use it. But what the impact tracker does is allow you to put in um, certain meaningful metrics about the stories that you have reported, and those meaningful metrics might be things like getting a launch changed or getting someone to finally respond to constituent complaints or how much mail you got and how many stories you were able to generate as a result of one line of reporting that you did. So it's got a number of different indicators that show that no, this is not just the revenue side of this. This is the impact, the overall impact that our reporting has had in allowing us to do more reporting and allowing us to impact uh, the actual everyday lives of the individuals who may or may not be consumed our product. I think impact is such a great yeah, word. I mean, one thing I'm sure I joined Knight like 60 days ago, um, and one thing I learned is like they do a lot of learning and impact, and <laughs> and I just feel like how do we take story success? You know, like when we have a good story, a good investigative story, which is like here's the impact we made, and I feel like we should actually do that <laughs> more often. Not just with the big story, but with like everyday stories. What are the learning and impact that you could glean from this collection of stories? And I think that could also be a different indicator of success and trust. Meredith, is are there insights from the report uh, that basically, you know, where these communities talk about what good engagement looks like? Because there were some news organizations that were preferred over others. There mm -hmm. were there were positive feedback for certain news organizations. I think BuzzFeed and uh, The Guardian were mm -hmm. were the top two in terms of positive feedback. Mm -hmm. Um, some of the things that I saw in terms of positive feedback about engagement had to do honestly with the personality of the individuals who folks could interact with on Twitter and being able to see more of what they do beside their job. So what do you look like as a human being? What is it like to interact with you on a day-to-day -day basis? Have you humanized yourself for the audience? And then beyond that, some of the things that you saw, um, one of the reasons that people kept referring to The Guardian is because they saw how The Guardian would tap experts, people with lived experience in a particular subject or in a particular field and rely on their expertise instead of saying, we are the source of all knowledge and we will present this to the masses. Being able to engage with people online and see who had expertise and say, hey, will you come and write for us? Um, you saw that with Mickey Kendall. She wrote about Solidarity is for White Women several years ago. And you've seen that with people who have written about issues like intimate partner violence. Um, the Guardian does a really great job of stepping back and giving some ground to other people to be able to tell stories. That's terrific. Right here? Mm 
Do you want to take that one, Nisha? <laughs> um, I think that I mean I think that Twitter and Facebook. I think it's important to be conscious that like Twitter and Facebook are are generally very different audiences. Um, and I think if you are the person like managing engagement for your news outlet, you you know it, it's it's part of your job to understand who your audiences are on each of those platforms. Um, I think that you know Twitter like tends to be. Um, tends to be more journalists and um, people who outside of journalists it tends to be people who um, are really into like news consumption and um, live event coverage and, and things like that that like tend to really flourish on Twitter whereas Facebook might be sort of a more like um, like a, a more mass audience because you know these days we would say like Every, everybody's on Facebook um, I think that um, we you know I try to think about, um, I mean, I think that like engagement teams like tailor their strategy for each platform because the audience is different on each of them. Um, so it's sort of a, a I think, a, a important question of like understanding who your audience is on each of those and understanding like what will play well and what won't um, and um, tailoring your your sort of content and your, your response um, on each of those. I, I also think that, like, you know, Twitter is, like, when, when you're talking about, like, listening and um, um, getting feedback, like, Twitter is so much more public. You know, it's public by default, whereas, like, a Facebook page, like, if people are commenting on a, on a Facebook post on the Vox Facebook page, like, it's not as public. Like, the people who are on the Vox Facebook page or follow it might see it, but not everybody else is going to see it. So it's a little bit more... Um, Insulated. Um, those people on, like the people who are really active commenters on Facebook, are probably also a little bit more loyal um, if they have been following you on Facebook and commenting and engaging with your posts every day. Um, whereas on Twitter, something can get retweeted and go viral, and you are now interacting with not just your existing audience, but people who maybe don't follow you and don't consume your content, but are seeing this one tweet out of context. Um, so I guess, I mean, I guess my answer is sort of like tailoring, you know, tailoring your, you have to like tailor your response and your, your content to each platform. Makes sense. There's a question in the back. Where's Eric Coffin? I think you're in the room. <laughs> Where's Eric Coffin from AP? You could. We should actually talk. There's a group of people that are working on it, including Sound Guys, and that okay. cover a lot of. Can you stand up? Off in the distance. Important discussion. Paul, I think Knight Foundation has a new idea to fund. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you looking at me? <laughs> You're the money man. I'm not. I was also going to add to that. Um, no. I do think that it's incumbent upon. Uh, organizations to take that seriously for themselves because every single platform serves in some way, shape, or form a specific audience. And the audience that is coming to you has needs that differ from platform to platform. Um, one of the problems that I have long had with the AP and have written about and plenty of people have written about it, but the AP doesn't capitalize the B in black. And that is one of the reasons that while it's great for maintaining consistency across platforms with style and the way that we report on things, I can point to it as flawed. Whereas you can take your style guide at your paper, your digital platform, your outlet, what have you, and make those kind of changes that say we respect the audience that follows us, we understand that this is a concern that they have, 
maybe that's the B in black for, for your platform, maybe it's something else, the terminology that you use for something else. But I do think that every single platform in the same way that we have in-house style guides um, has to take on that responsibility for themselves as well. I think you could also engage all the different minority journalism associations. For example, for the Asian American Journalist Association, they have a media watch committee. And they also, out of that, they have sort of like a very loose guide on how to cover Asian Americans, right? Like what words not to use. Um, and you know, when there's inaccurate coverage, they issue statements very much the same way as NABJ and NAHJ. So I think a lot of those work might exist, but how do we take the work that the different minority association is working on and you know, elevate it more into the mainstream discourse? Great. Any more questions? One right, right here. Some of the things, so I've been working on Black Twitter since about 2010, and Black when, Black when, Black when, <laughs> back when Twitter was a little bit more fun, um, there were tweet ups, and they were, you know, and we had tweet ups, right? We did them with, with folks in, in news and that sort of thing. Uh, but the thing about tweet ups that got individuals to come from behind their cell phones and their laptops and all that good stuff is that they were held in the places where people were. They weren't a thing where I say, you know, you come to me, this is my background, my playground, um, come out to where I am and be comfortable in my home. They met in places where people had common things to meet about and to be comfortable around. And so I think in listening to the audiences that you're connecting to and doing the social listening, asking them where they want to meet and what they want to meet around and what should be provided in order to make that accessible to everyone is going to be really important. I think at the same time, you, you want to make also your home accessible, right? And it's something that I've been advocating for a long time in terms of every newsroom should invite the community to come to just have a casual conversation because like journalism you think people understand but no one actually know they you know like dateline it know. doesn't matter to anyone else except for us in this room <laughs> like you go as a regular person what is a dateline they're just like i don't know like why does it matter right so you know like who are these reporters that's coming in they probably don't even know like the merit of jobs that like what it takes to produce Journalism, so I think it's equally important when you think about media literacy, right? You know, we are out there, but at the same time, we want to make our home as inviting as possible, so that people will want to come. For people who have an opinion section, also look at how are you being inclusive in your opinion section, right? Because if you don't see yourself reflected in in the coverage, right? You could say, well, you know, we don't have a lot of, um, we're really struggling with diversity. One way to go around that is just like, well, let's invite more people with different perspective to write opinion pieces about a topical issues, right? You might have to do a lot more work in terms of editing and, and shepherding them to get to fruition, but sort of like, isn't that why we're here? Is to like bring stories that we don't normally hear to the to the surface and not tell the story that we already know. So we're almost out of time. Uh, I'm sure these guys will stick around for a few more minutes if you guys have additional questions. But I do have one last question for each of you. Um, so what are you hopeful for in terms of the role that tech can play in closing gaps in diversity and journalism? Mm -hmm. By, by tech, you mean like the platforms or technology broader? in general? Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. technology in general. I'm hopeful. I mean, so I'm hopeful that technology had make access a lot easier, right? So now we could actually talk to communities that you normally aren't able to talk to on a regular basis. I think, you know, bringing that awareness, and really the next step is on your, you know, is in your hands, right? Like how do you cultivate these communities to be sort of part of your day-to-day -day conversation and not be sort of like when 
you know, when something happened, like when the Lunar New Year, that's when we're gonna engage the Chinese community. Oh, it's Pride Month, let's get like a gay story out, right? Like, I wanna see like, if there's a prom story, you know, where's the LBGT couple? Where's the, you know, immigrant couples that's celebrating prom for the first time, you know, in America? So I think, you know, technology give you access in ways that we couldn't imagine before we still have to go back to the roots of what being a good journalist is, is developing that relationship. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna counter some of that because I'm not, I'm not very hopeful about technology as a thing. Um, technology to me is a tool. And we had the ability to listen to those stories before. It's just that we did not have the will to do it. When revenue started to plummet and we realized that we needed to talk to people other than the ones that, who were buying the products that advertisers were selling on our platforms, then we realized we needed to get out and listen to some more of those stories. And so my hope is for people, honestly, for people to think a little bit deeper about the ways that they engage. And everything from who you do and do not engage, look in the eye and speak to as you pass them on the street or if you're in the elevator together, to um, how you think about the way that you move through the world and how it differs from the way that other people move through the world. Because that will help us to harness the tools and the technology to do better work, to engage in more meaningful ways. And so I, I don't have a lot of hope for technology, but I have a lot of hope for all of us. <laughs> Um, I think that, um, you know, I, I am uh, optimistic. I, I think it has been really um, fascinating and um, encouraging to see, particularly with, like, feminist Twitter over the last, like, decade, like, you know, before, like, just watching, like, the Me Too movement last year, like, people actually listened. Like, it became a tipping point, and that was partly because all these women mobilized on social media, and they use social media to make themselves heard, and, you know, journalism, like, we, like, like, media outlets certainly covered it, but also, like, it put pressure on the organizations and the institutions where these men worked. Like, men actually got fired for bad behavior, which, you know, 10 years ago or 20 years ago, like, these same allegations were out there, the same behavior was out there, but the response was very different, and there there was not accountability, and there were not consequences. Um, and I do think that the you know the rise of like being able to use social media and and speak back to institutions has has changed that, and like now we can demand accountability and and get it, and and that is really encouraging to me, and I'm I'm so glad that that has happened. There's obviously still a long way to go. There is more work to be done, um, but I, I I guess I would say my hope is that um, the progress that we've made so far, I hope that it it. Uh, permeates beyond the the communities that it's in and and really becomes more mainstream um, I hope that you know wider audiences start to understand um, these you know these issues and these perspectives and I hope it goes wider and 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 broader I, I mean just one uh, one more thought I think technology collects so much data about yourself already so it's really easy to just go back, take a look at your Instagram feed Ooh. in the past month. What kind of photos do you like? Who did you choose to follow? Who do you choose to retweet? What 10 Facebook friends have you friend? Look at that. Look at that feed for the past month and then quickly examine, just like, oh, hey, you know, there's some voices lacking in there and it's up to you whether you want to take action or not. So that's what technology could do, is it help you discover some of your own biases in, in ways that previously you can't. That's terrific. Thank you so much, guys. That was an incredible discussion.